0: record the 70s, this is Amy, and this is the place where we take a deep dive into the intersection of the music, politics, and culture of the 70s. In this episode, I will offer my theory for why progressive country and its subgenre outlaw country, were the perfect forms of music for the 70s and its time of social change. First, a quick thank you to all of the returning listeners, and welcome to the new listeners who have found us on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple, several other podcast venues. If you like the show, please be sure to give it a nice review on your app so that other 70s music and history fans can find it. Many people would say that progressive country music, and therefore outlaw country, began when Willie Nelson's house in Nashville burned down. Willie was returning home from a Christmas party on December 23rd, 1969, and he found his house on fire. He was already finding it difficult to make music the way he wanted to make it in Nashville, despite being a very successful songwriter. So, after the fire, he moved to Austin, Texas, and found a whole new audience for his music. I argue, though, that progressive country began when the Beatles arrived in New York on February 7th, 1964. That was their first visit to the United States, and while it's not a straight line, there is a line from that date to the counterculture of the 1960s. It was in, within that counterculture, the baby boomers pushing back against the established norms of American society that progressive country music was born. In the fall of 1965, Bob Dylan toured with a Canadian band called the Hawks, and they played shows throughout Texas. The Hawks were later renamed the band, and the band went on to have several of their own early southern rock-style hits like Up on Cripple Creek and The Night They Drove Old Dixie Down, I profiled the band and that song on episode three of this very podcast. Go check it out if you have not already done so. In 1966, Bob Dylan released one of the first ultra-successful double albums of any genre, Blonde on Blonde. He recorded it in Nashville. Rock musicians did not record in Nashville, but this was Dylan. And he took Robbie Robertson of the band, soon to be called the band, with him. The record that Dylan made is, I think, one of the first progressive country records. It's not all country. It's actually not all one of anything. But what do you think of this?
1: You to play tricks when you're trying to be quiet. We're sitting here stranded, though we're doing our best to deny. From the opposite loft In this room the heat pipes they cough The country music station plays soft But there's nothing really nothing to to turn off
0: In this room, the heat pipes just cough, the country music station plays soft. But there's nothing, really nothing, to turn off. Just Louise and her lover so entwined, and these visions of Johanna that conquer my mind. Those lyrics. So much of what is happening with this genre of country is happening lyrically. That is Visions of Johanna from Blonde on Blonde by Bob Dylan in 1966, backed by the Hawks, later the band. I'm not here to proclaim firsts, but I am going to declare that it is one of the earliest progressive country songs. Two years later, in 1968, Graham Parsons and the Byrds recorded the album Sweetheart of the Rodeo in Nashville. It was another blending of country and rock that feels very progressive country. In fact, there are two uh, Dylan songs on this album. Roger McGuinn of the Birds said that Parsons grew up on country, and the Birds were very sincere in their attempt to make a country album. It is considered a classic now, but as you might imagine, the country music establishment did not know what to do with Sweetheart of the Rodeo. They knew they weren't going to play it on the radio. They knew that much. The Birds were, however, the first rock band to play at the Grand Ole Opry in Nashville. And when they covered a Merle Haggard song, Sing Me Back Home, they were booed. Now, the birds they were hippies. Their hair was too long. They weren't country. Then they went on Ralph Emery's radio show. Ralph was a big-time piece of the country music establishment. And he told the band, your record's no good. Your hair's too long. It's not real country. You know, the ironic part of all that is that Ralph hosted one of the least traditional country TV shows ever, Pop Goes the Country. That was on throughout the 70s. At any rate, the Birds then wrote a song about that experience with Ralph Emery. They called it Drugstore, Truck Driving Man. Let's check out some of that. <laughs> ¶¶ Store, truck driver man. He's the head of the Ku Klux Klan. When summer rolls around, he'll be lucky if he's not in town. Well, he's got him a house on the hill. He plays country records till you've had your fill. He's a fireman's friend. He's an all-night DJ, but he sure does think different from the records he plays. Again, the lyrics, and they go on like that. That's from the 1969 album Dr. Birds and Mr. Hyde, and that song is dedicated to Ralph Emery. Roger McGuinn had a chance to revisit that whole experience in 1985 when he was on Emory's talk show, Nashville Now. Here's a bit of that exchange.
2: Roger, have we met? Yes, we have, Ralph. We met in 1968 uh, on your WSM oh. radio show.
3: Well, you, well, it was Graham Parsons...
2: That's right. Graham and I came over with a, a single from the Sweetheart of the Rodeo album.
3: Yes. That was not a good <laughs> meeting, was it?
2: No, it wasn't, but uh, I, I think uh, it's kind of funny now.
3: That was 68? 1968, right. And uh, the birds I recall, were a very hot rock group.
2: Right. We had just come from uh, number one success with, like, Turn Turn. and Mr. But Henry. I didn't play any rock music. No, and we were uh, we were like invading uh, enemy uh aliens no, or something.
3: It wasn't enemy territory. I just didn't play any rock music. Oh. Uh, See, we thought what we'd done was country. in our
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Wow. Well, uh, that's an uncomfortable laugh. We we thought we made country. Ha, ha. You didn't make country. Okay, here's a little bit more of that.
3: And I always got the impression well, I had a re- reason to get the impression Graham was not uh, happy with me. Because later, he, he dedicated a song to me, didn't he? Or somebody did in the Birds organization.
2: That's right. Uh, as a matter of fact, Graham and I wrote the
3: song together. what was a truck driving song? Yeah,
2: a uh, drugstore truck driving man.
3: And, I, and who, who, on the record, you can hear it, this is for you, Ralph. That's right. Now, what was the point of all that?
2: Well, we just sent in a little
3: letter to you. <laughs>
2: were, you were you mad at me? It wasn't anything real serious. Huh?
3: <laughs> <laughs> I think I think you were disappointed with me because I didn't play the Birds records.
2: Well, we were a little hurt by that. Yeah, huh? you know, we were hurt.
3: <laughs> well, I was afraid that all the people like George Jones wouldn't like the Birds. No. See, the times were quite different then. They certainly
2: were, and I'm glad to see things going uh, the way they are.
3: You didn't cross over very much. Yeah. And nobody crossed over very much. Marty Robbins was another biggie that I played a lot of. Did the Birds appear on the Grand Ole Opry during that that era? Yes, we did. How did that? Now, in 1968, how did that work?
2: Well, I don't remember exactly how we got on the show. I think some of the uh, people at CBS Records managed to get us on. But what was the reaction? Uh, The audience reaction? Yes. It was a little
3: cool. Was it? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) How were you? Did you have long hair?
2: No, we had my my hair about like it is now.
3: Were you dressed in uh, the rock costumes of that day?
2: No, as a matter of fact, we had uh, cowboy boots and jeans, and we were trying to... See, you didn't understand where we were coming from. We had fallen in love with country music in 1968, and Graham Parsons had... uh, He was from the South, and he'd always grown up on it, and his ambition in life was to play the Grand Ole Opry. And so we went ahead with Sweetheart of the Rodeo. And we are trying to do a real sincere, genuine country album and not knowing too much about it, being from Chicago myself. It came off a little different than that, but uh, we were really sincere.
0: You know, what's really interesting about that to me is this is 1985, and Ralph Emery seems to have forgotten that many artists crossed over, as he put it, between 68 and 78 and now, I understand his point of view that at that time, it was still new. As he said, times were different. But it might have been a good time there, maybe to drop in an apology, uh, because what the birds were was doing, or what the birds were doing, I should say, in 1968 was really just a sign of some things to come. There was a long-haired country artist named uh, Ray Wiley Hubbard, who was with other, we'll just call them country hippies, in a small town in New Mexico in the early 70s. He said there were two places to buy beer in that town, a redneck bar, his words, not mine, and a hippie bar. He went to the so-called redneck bar, and all eyes turned to look at him. There was one woman in there, an older woman, who apparently was the owner of the bar. Her son looked at Ray's long hair and said, hey, do you want me to beat him up? Now Ray got out of there, without getting beat up, but he wrote a song about it. Jerry Jeff Walker recorded it. It's called Redneck Mother, and it has these lyrics. He was born in Oklahoma, and his wife's name is Betty Lou Thelma Liz. He's not responsible for what he's doing. His mother made him what he is, and it's up against the wall, Redneck Mother, mother who has raised her son so well. He's 34 and drinking in a honky-tonk, just kicking hippie's asses and raising hell he was born
3: in
4: Oklahoma his wife's name's Betty Lou Thelma is he's not responsible for what he's doing this his my
0: This experience has got me thinking about Rick Nelson and the song Garden Party because it wasn't just the country music establishment or country music fans who had these ideas about who should sing what. So Rick Nelson was Ricky Nelson in the 1950s, and he was the first real TV teen idol. He was on the show Ozzy and Harriet. He sang these sweet early rock hits like Hello, Mary Lou, And Travelin' Man, although I have to say Travelin' Man sounds a little country-ish to me. At any rate, in 1971, Rick Nelson was invited to play at a rock revival show at Madison Square Garden in New York City with people like Chuck Berry and Bobby Rydell. In many people's minds, he was still Ricky Nelson with that perfect pompadour haircut. You know, think Elvis, but with a lighter hair color and the suit. But this was the adult Rick Nelson, with long hair, and bell bottoms, and a purple velvet shirt. He did play his hits, but he also played some of his newer stuff, which was country-inspired for sure. Like "Country Honk." "Country Honk" is the country version of "Honky Tonk Women" by the Rolling Stones. Here's a little bit of that. Here we go. That Rick Nelson, when he played that, whether or not they were booing at him, it's not completely clear because some people say that there was something happening with the police in the back of the crowd. Nevertheless, Rick thought they were booing him. So he wrote garden party and it became the title track to his next country rock slash progressive country album. He wrote in part, played them all the old songs thought that's why they came No one heard the music. We didn't look the same. I said hello to Mary Lou. She belongs to me. When I sang a song about a honky tonk, it was time to leave.
1: them all the old songs thought that's why they came no one heard the music we didn't look the same i said hello to mary lou she belongs to me And i sang a song about a honky-tonk it was time to leave but it's all right Learned my lesson well. You see, you, you can't please everyone, so you got to please yourself. La da da, da da, la da da da. Someone opened up a closet door and out stepped Johnny be Good. Like a ring and a bell And looking like you should if You gotta play at garden parties I wish you a lot of luck But if memories were all I sang I'd rather drive a truck But it's alright
0: six on the Billboard Hot 100, it snuck into the country charts at number yeah, 44, please. Garden Party uh, by Rick Nelson. Here is something that we still have not solved yet in music. We have not yet figured out when we're going to allow artists to perform the music that they want to perform without judging if they should be allowed to perform it. Now, granted, it was a rock and roll show, but Nelson was a seasoned performer by then, And I think he knew if he was being well-received or not, and he didn't think he was being well-received because of his music and probably uh, because of his appearance too. Here's what was happening in the 70s, musically and culturally. We see that over the span of time from Dylan's Blonde on Blonde up until the end of the 70s, there are several sub-genres of music, progressive rock, funk, punk, new wave, Southern rock, and today's focus, progressive country, and outlaw country. Culturally, the 60s was the era of legal change that affected society, most notably the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But the 70s was the era when we got to try to live under those new rules. If you're kind of nerdy like I am, you might want to check out a book called America in the 70s, edited by Beth Bailey and David Farber. In the introduction of the book, they get even more specific about my point about these new rules. It says in the book, whatever else might be said about the 70s, they certainly were not stayed. It was during the 1970s that sex outside of the marriage became the norm. That It was during the 1970s that censorship laws were struck down, sexual districts in cities flourished, and heterosexual couples flocked to the 1972 sensation, Deep Throat. They go on to say this important point, which leads us into this episode today. Although the growth of illegal drug use and born-again Christianity may seem vastly different, both are at least in part responses to a felt sense of crisis and uncertainty. In the 1970s, Americans, even more than usual, felt both the necessity and the freedom to reinvent themselves and form new institutions in new communities. That was happening in music with these breaking aw- the breaking away of different sub-genres of music. You know what? It was happening on TV too. This all feels very all-in-the-family to me. That show is about as 70s as you can get. In fact, I just realized that there's a photo of Archie and Edith on the cover of that book, America in the 70s. So you have Archie is sort of likable white guy with a lot of bigoted beliefs. He ends up living with his hippie son-in-law, Mike. Archie calls Mike Meathead because Mike is too liberal. Anything
3: interesting in the paper? Yeah, 200 arrested at Vietnam Day peace demonstration. 200. They should have thrown a whole bunch of them in the can. Look at that picture there. Here they are, throwing all kinds of junk and deepers at officers of the law, (laughs) desecrating on the American flag. What the hell are them peace nicks want anyhow?
1: Well, I think they just don't like the idea of America fighting an illegal and immoral war.
2: Well, if they don't like it, they can lump it.
1: take it down the road and dump it well that would include me too mr bunker then toodle you to you too well well, what would our leaving solve i mean with or without protesters this country would still have the same problems
5: what problems well it's the war the racial problem the economic problem the pollution oh come on if you want a nitpick (laughs) nitpick let me tell you something, Mr. Bunker. No, let me tell you something, Mr. Stivic. You are a meathead. <laughs>
6: uh, what is am uh, A meathead.
5: Dead from the neck
6: up. Meathead. <laughs>
1: I see what your idea of a free country is. You're free to say anything you want, but if but if anyone disagrees with you, they're either thrown into jail or called a meethead, right? That's right, because this is American land that I love. Well, I love it too, Mr. Bunker, and it's because I do like protest when I think things are wrong. And stand
5: beside her. And guide well,
1: her. The, the, the right of the state is the principal room with
5: space. With the light from above. Listen to me. It's in the Bill of Rights. From the mountains? Why do you think we broke away from the England prairies. to begin with? Huh? Because we didn't agree with it.
0: We what we what like child this? of the 70s did not grow up watching All in the Family at least once in a while? We watched it every Sunday. So even though, you know, Archie and Mike are arguing very different sides of social issues, you might, you could make the case that they are in kind of the same boat at trying to establish themselves as individuals in uncertain times. So like rock and roll, country music was going through a bit of an identity crisis in the late 60s and early 70s. A lot of that was brought on the industry by country radio's desire to lure fans away from rock and roll. Uh, Please check out episode two of this very podcast, How Country Radio Killed Country Music, for more about that. So as the calendar turned from the 60s 60s to the 70s, that that counterculture ideal of the 60s was very much alive in young singers and songwriters. It would be far too simple, though, to say what separated progressive country and the outlaw country artists from the establishment was their hair and their clothes. The essence of progressive and uh, outlaw country was the lyrics. The book American Popular Music puts it this way, Progressive country performers wrote songs that were more intellectual and liberal in outlook than their contemporaries and were more concerned with testing the limits of the country music tradition than with scoring hits. The book goes on to say that the way these progressive country artists got into the mainstream was often by doing cover versions. It mentioned Harper Valley PTA, which was written by Tom T. Hall, and that became a number one hit on the pop and country charts for Jeannie C. Riley in 1968. It also mentioned Help Me Make It Through the Night, which was written by Chris Christopherson and became a number one hit for a woman named Sammy Smith. Let's talk about that one, Help Me Make It Through the Night. Christopherson's backstory is well documented in other places, so I'm not going to go into great detail about it here. You can go to my show notes at FTR70.com for an article about Chris Christofferson's biography. I will just say that it is not mere legend that Christofferson landed his helicopter on Johnny Cash's lawn. Of course, he was trying to get Johnny Cash's attention so that Cash would record his songs. And that will end up happening. Johnny Cash recorded a lot of Christopherson songs. I think the most famous is probably Sunday Morning Coming Down. Mm-hmm. I mean, Chris Christopherson, he was a poet. In the Ken Burns country music documentary that aired on PBS in September of this year, 2019, Larry Gatlin said that all of the words in Sunday Morning Coming Down are in the dictionary, but nobody had thought to put them in that order before. And that's it. That's the beauty of language and writing, too. But that's also some of the beauty of this progressive country music. As great writers do, Christopherson wrote with this beautiful and painful way about regret. He wrote, And somewhere far away, a lonely bell was ringing, and it echoed through the canyon like the disappearing dreams of yesterday on the Sunday morning sidewalk, wishing, Lord, that I was stoned because there is something in a Sunday that makes a body feel alone. Christofferson recorded this song about... Sunday Morning Hangovers and Regrets for his self-titled album in 1970. That was after Ray Stevens recorded it It had a minor hit with it in 1969. It is the Johnny Cash recording, though, that is most well-known. That line, wishing Lord that I was stoned, that did not sit well with ABC executives, though. Cash had a television variety show. Who didn't have a television variety show? Uh, in late 69 and in 1970. uh, He was set to play Sunday Morning Coming Down, and he was told by ABC executives, you can't sing that. Lord, I wish I was stoned. They told him to switch stoned to home. He said okay. Here he is performing the song on the show. Today
5: is a friend of mine named Chris Christopherson. And he'll be with us on the show in a couple of weeks, but... Before he comes, I'd like to do one of his songs, too. but my favorite songs of his. Well, I woke up Sunday morning with no way to hold my head. That didn't hurt. And the beer I had for breakfast wasn't bad, so I had one more for dessert. Then I fumbled in my closet through my clothes and found my cleanest dirty shirts. Then I washed my face and combed my hair and stumbled down the stairs to meet the day. I smoked my mind the night before with cigarettes and songs I'd been picking. But I lit my first and watched a small boy playing with a can that he was kicking. I headed across the street and caught the Sunday smell of someone frying chicken And it took me back to something that I lost somewhere somehow along the way On a Sunday morning Yeah,
0: he sang it anyway. He sang Stoned Anyway. They really should have known better than to try to tell Johnny Cash what to do. I mean, he's the original outlaw. Christofferson, though, tapped into something that was very real and authentic with his songs. Maybe too real and authentic for some people. He wrote Help Me Make It Through the Night in 1969 while he was staying with country legend Dottie West and her husband. He offered the song to Dottie West to record, but she said no, it was too sexually suggestive. A song about a woman openly asking a man to have sex with her? No, can't do that. So, Sammy Smith recorded it instead. Number one on Billboard Hot Country, singles chart in 1970, number eight on the Billboard Hot 100 chart in 1971, and a Grammy Award, too. Sammy Smith made... Help Me Make It Through the Night, one of the most iconic country-ish songs of the 1970s.
6: Take the ribbon from my hair Shake it loose
1: and let it fall soft against your skin Like the shadows on the wall Come and lay down by my side Till the earth
6: Help me make it through
1: I don't care what's right wrong. I won't try to
6: understand.
0: In July nineteen seventy, music critic Kathy Orloff wrote a column about Christofferson that was titled Christofferson is Real People. And in that column she said that his songs are personal but not mawkish, emotional, but not self-indulgent, tender, but totally masculine. I think this is in part what brings the long hairs and the cowboys together in the 70s. In reading several concert reviews for artists like Willie Nelson and Waylon Jennings, the writer almost always remarked on the crowd, the guys who look like hippies and the guys who look like their horse might be waiting for them outside. In a concert review from uh, Rapid City, South Dakota, the reviewer described the crowd at a Waylon Jennings-Jesse Coulter show as a, quote, human-tossed salad, with the tobacco chewers and the pot smokers equally happy. Hey, And uh, speaking of pot smokers, Willie Nelson? Uh, Steve Earle said that it was the Tex-Mex musician Doug Somm who told Willie to move to Austin and play at the club called the Armadillo World Headquarters, and it was Sam who convinced Jerry Wexler of Atlantic Records to sign Willie if Atlantic was looking to sign a progressive country artist. The crowds in Austin, Texas, were edgier, kind of like fans of rock music. Uh, Steve Earle also said of Austin that he saw a lot of what he called weirdness, rampant drug and alcohol use, and folks... Steve Earle spent a year in prison for heroin possession in the 90s, so if he is saying that it was weird, it was weird. Willie made two albums for RCA before they closed their country music division, Shotgun Willie and Phases and Stages. He was able to express himself in the way that he always wanted to with his own songs, and he was able to record the songs that other people wrote and make them his own. He said in his biography... Wexler's attitude really pumped me up. I cranked out songs one after the other. The atmosphere was right. Whereas Nashville had always been uptight about musicians smoking dope in the studio, Atlantic didn't give a shit. Wexler got high with us. Wexler never bugged me to put sweeteners to stimulate sales. I felt free to tap into my imagination, no holds barred. These two albums are what introduced Willie to the younger, more rock oriented crowd. They didn't really want anything to do with a guy like a, a Roy Acuff or even Glenn Campbell, who was all in on the Nashville sound and on his way to becoming the rhinestone cowboy. They would pay money to buy Willie Nelson's music or go hear his band because they could relate to him. I mean, for one thing he looked like them. Now he didn't look like the guy who wrote hello walls or crazy. He looked like a hippie. But more than that, they could relate to his music, and they appreciated his music. This has become one of Willie's signature songs. Jerry Bush wrote it, Willie recorded it for the Shotgun Willie album, and now he can't play a concert without it. This is Whiskey River.
6: Whiskey River, take my mind. Whiskey River, don't run dry They're all I got, take care of me Whiskey River, take my mind Don't let her memory torture me Whiskey River, don't run dry I'm in red mind in the wetness of its soul, feeling the amber current flowing from my mind, and leaving hard. You left so cold. Whiskey river, take my mind.
0: recorded that first in July of 72, but it was released as a single in 1978 and made it to number 12 on the Billboard Hot Country chart. Willie also convinced Waylon Jennings to join him in Texas and Waylon, uh, he wasn't on board right away. Again, the hippies, Willie looked like a hippie. He was playing to hippies in the honky tonks, Uh, but it would not take long before Waylon would uh, become one of them as well. Waylon and Willie were playing honky-tonks, and uh, Waylon did not even have a record label backing him. Even when he was signed by RCA at Willie's urging, he didn't like how RCA kept a close watch over him. He finally broke free from their control with the album This Time in 1974, which Willie did help produce. It was recorded at Tom Paul Glazer's studio in Nashville. The studio would end up being called Hillbilly Central. So he made this record, Waylon Jennings, that was not at the RCA studio, said no when they told him to kind of spruce up the album. The album goes to number four and that's what made him an outlaw. It wasn't Waylon Jennings' long hair, it wasn't the beard, it was not even the cocaine and the notorious uh, drug lifestyle that Waylon Jennings had. Waylon Jennings said no to RCA Records at a time when he was in some debt, by the way. It was in this studio that the term Outlaw Country was born. Hazel Smith was the publicist for Tom Paul and the band that he had with his brothers. Uh, She worked at the studio and also started her iconic uh, country music magazine column there. She said that she got a phone call at the studio from a radio station, asking about how to describe the type of music that was being made at Hillbilly Central. And she said she just took her cue from the textbook definition of outlaw, living on the outside of the written law. She said, I leaned back in my chair and said, that's it. They are not going with the Nashville establishment. They're doing their own thing. And that's what it means to be an outlaw country artist, at least technically. Outlaw country would become a marketing term. That's not Hazel's fault, of course. This is just the record industry doing what the record industry does, trying to sell records with whatever they've got. So they cultivated this image of singers like Waylon and Willie as outlaws. Outlaw country artists were called outlaw because they were not happy with what they saw as this overproduced music coming out of Nashville. Willie Nelson called it slick, and uh, Tom Paul Glazer said it was very Lawrence Welkish. For us, Will, uh, Waylon Jennings said, outlaw meant standing up for your rights, your own way of doing things. So in January of 75, Willie Nelson recorded the concept album, The Red-Headed Stranger. This was for Columbia Records. He was now in complete creative control of his music, and he produced this spare, sparse-sounding, primitive, almost country album about a man who kills his wife and her lover. Columbia Records was sure that this record sucked and thought, okay, um, after it bombs and everyone agrees that it sucks, we can talk Willie Nelson into making something different next time. Except it didn't suck. It was and still is critically acclaimed and provided evidence that there did not need to be horns or an orchestra to sell a record in 1975. (laughs)
6: In twilight glow I see Blue eyes cry in the rain When we kissed goodbye and part I knew we'd never like a dying number and only memories remain and through the ages I'll remember blue eyes cry
0: that is Willie Nelson's first number one country hit And in 2010, it was included in the National Recording Registry for its historical and cultural significance. Waylon and his wife, Jessie Coulter, uh, who sang and played on Shotgun Willie, collaborated with Willie and Tom Paul Glazer on an album called Wanted Outlaws in 1976. It is a compilation album of previously recorded material. And it is the first country album to sell over a million copies, which means a whole lot of folks who did not normally buy country music bought this one. Again, the title, Wanted Outlaws, is very much about marketing. Waylon said that the song You Mean to Say by Jesse is the heart of the whole album. The song is about a relationship that is ending, and the singer is questioning whether it would be that easy to end it. She wrote the song. Jessie did, and she knew a thing or two about difficult relationships because, well, she was married to Waylon Jennings. In 1975, her single, I'm Not Lisa, was nominated for Single of the Year and Song of the Year by the Country Music Association. It was another one of these crossover hits. I mean, it was nominated for Female Vocal Country Performance of the Year, but it also uh, it made it to number four on the Billboard Hot 100 charts, and it seemed like it was on the radio every damn time we got in the car, In 1975, Waylon and Willie wrote Good Hearted Woman in 1971 and uh, Waylon included it on his Good Hearted Woman album. Waylon and Willie's duet was also on this Wanted Outlaws album. Shooter Jennings, who is the child of Waylon and Jesse Coulter, he said he feels like the song was for his mom. Hazel Smith, she said she thought so too. It was originally inspired, supposedly, by Tina Turner, loving that two-timing man, Ike Turner. It becomes a song about Jesse Coulter, though. And Waylon and Willie's duet was a number one hit on the country charts, and it was also named Song of the Year by the Country Music Association. Here are Waylon and Willie with Good-Hearted Woman.
6: A long time forgotten of
4: dreams that just fell by the way The good life he promised Ain't
6: what she's living today. Really? But she never complains of the bad times or the bad things he's done long. She just talks about the good times they've had And all the good times to come She's a good-hearted woman In love with a good time
4: night. She loves him in spite of his ways She don't understand Through tears
6: the
0: The Outlaw Movement, as a movement, was just about over by the end of the 70s. Willie Nelson moved to Los Angeles. That was kind of a symbolic gesture that that era was ending. Uh, Waylon was about to get into even more serious drug problems than he already had, and that would lead to some money problems too. Right around the time that Waylon was busted for drug possession in 1977, he recorded a song about what success was doing to a marriage. The song was about getting back to the simple way of life. In this case, it was Lukenbach, Texas.
4: The only two things in life that make it worth living Guitars are tuned good and firm, feeling women. I don't need my name in the marquee lights. I got my song and I got you with me tonight. Maybe it's time we got back to the basics of love. Let's go to Lucanbach, Texas, wailing and wailing. This successful life we're living Got us feuding like the Hatfields and McCoys Between Hank Williams' pain songs And Blueberry's train songs And blue eyes crying in the rain Out looking by Texas Ain't nobody feeling no pain How do you
0: not sing along to that one? That's, that's your earworm for this episode. Uh, Lucanbach, Texas was number one on the country charts for about a month in the summer of 77, and it made it to number 25 on the Billboard Hot 100. It was number one on my mom's playlist that summer, too. Of course, that is where uh, Jerry Jeff Walker recorded his Viva Terlingua album and the song Redneck Mother. For about 10 years, between 1985 and 1995, Waylon, Willie, Chris Christopherson, and Johnny Cash formed the country all-star Legends of Legends group, The Highwaymen. Uh, Waylon died in 2002, and then Cash died in 2003, and they had started touring uh, a few years before that, but it's still, they played to a lot of crowds who appreciated the opportunity to not only hear some good music, but to see all of those legends on the stage at the same time. The progressive country music of the 70s was born in the 60s, but it paved the way for the more alternative country of the late 90s. I mean, would Katie Lang's country music have existed without it? That's doubtful. Whether you were a hippie or a cowboy, though, you were attracted to the same thing in the music the authenticity, and that search for meaning in what was, in the 1970s, a very complex world. That is all for now. Thanks for listening to this episode. Remember, if you like the show, tell somebody that you like it and help spread the word. Also, follow the show on Instagram at 70spodcast. Bye, everybody.